This morning there are two scripture readings. The first is Romans 1, verse 20. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. And the second reading is taken from Colossians 1, verses 15 through 18. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can go ahead and be seated. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we thank you for your son Jesus. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your family, your children, your church, for the history, for the present, that give us the lens that we need by which to understand the truths of your word. And God, we recognize that more than even those lenses, we need your spirit. So would your spirit be at work in us? Giving us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to believe so that we might have minds for truth, hearts for service, hands for service, God. May the words of my lips and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer. In Christ's name, amen. Let me preface this next little bit by saying that we're not getting political. Uh, uh, so I, I guess it's been close to six months ago now. We had the elections uh, and Trump won and this is not about Trump winning or about the election. It's about Facebook a few days later or Instagram or one of the copious amounts of uh, social media and, and tools that have great good and great potential and also what seems like most all of it, right? Um, and on one of those, actually I think on all of those social media sites, there was a gospel singer uh, who put up a picture, a meme, and the meme had Jesus with his bags packed and the meme said, going back to the White House, going back to the White House. Now, when I think about that, and when I, I don't bring that up to say anything about 
the nature of faith of Obama or of President Trump or of any political party. I just bring that up so that you hear what the meme said. A picture of Jesus. I should have put it up there, uh, but I'm not tech savvy enough to do that. Picture of Jesus, suitcases, luggage, going back to, going back to the White House. Uh, and I was immediately reminded of being a youth pastor in Andrew, North Carolina. I always say south of Raleigh. That's not sufficient enough here because it is very south of Raleigh, uh, both geographically and in mindset, very south of Raleigh, Andrew, North Carolina. I was a youth pastor there and I loved it. I loved being at that church. That church was family to, to us. And, um, and this wasn't from within the church, from outside of the church. It was around See You at the Pole Day. Uh, and an organization stopped by for our youth group. Uh, they just dropped in, which is cool. We, we like visitors uh, with a bunch of uh, flyers. And the flyers had a new Ten Commandments for public school. Um, if you've been around Union Church long enough, and particularly through our series on Galatians, you probably already know how I feel about the concept of a new law anyway, or the idea of a law being able to save anyway, but that's not the point of this. It said a new Ten Commandments for public schools, and it went through all of them, and at the very bottom it said, and if we can do this, then maybe God will come back to our public schools. Jesus, with luggage, going back to the White House, God, prompted by a set of rules mostly having to do with music and language and dress and prayer, prompted, maybe even uh, obligated to go back to public schools. And the question that I want to raise this morning is if Jesus has to go back to the White House and if God has to go back into our schools, then where are Jesus and God in the meantime? And I ask this because I don't think, like I use very extreme examples, but I don't think that this is too far off from the way that we think about God. We're in a series about God. We're seeing what God is like. We're, we've talked about naming the unnameable. And so when we look at this, we see that God is well beyond us. He's unnameable, unsearchable, invisible, infinite, divine, transcendent. And yet, in his mercy and his grace, he has given us means by which, not fully, but approximately, to name and to search him out. And this today we're going to talk about seeing him. God has given us, by his grace, God has given us the ability to see and to know who God is and what God is like. And this is important. And, and there is this notion of God that I think has been caught subtly and maybe even taught in some ways that God is in some places and not in others. And that the reason for that usually is based on behaviors or specific types of beliefs. Now, we are a Christian church. 
And so we hold a Christian belief set. And one of the things that is interesting to me is that when you look at these memes and when you look at this mindset, we begin to ask questions that are in some cases reasonable and in some cases not. Where is God in all of this? Where was God when Barack was in the White House, if not in the White House? Where was God in the school systems and in the different schools where, where is God? And then that makes me ask another question. Is God only present in the things that we deem good? And this comes to the heart of what we're going to explore today. Didn't see that one coming, did you? <laughs> Is God only present in the good? The title of this is Seeing the Invisible, but I wrestled with this title, uh, Faithful Living in the Absence of God. In fact, we're going to do a whole series on the book of Esther, and we may still, called Faithful Living in the Absence of God. So now, if you've been in church long enough, that can make your heart sort of what do you mean the absence of God? Faithful living in the, how, how, does God, how is God absent, right? And that's a great question. But, but when you look at the book of Esther, what you'll find is it's the only book in the Bible where God doesn't show up. There's no mention of God. That's what I mean. God isn't named. God doesn't speak. No actions are attributed to God. God, the words for God, Elohim and Yahweh, are mentioned, and Jehovah are mentioned zero times in the book of Esther. And so Esther, for me, was a great case study in this question that we're asking. How do we live when it feels like God is absent? How do we Move in faith when God seems invisible. And this notion of an invisible God is not an absurd notion, right? There's a woman at a well, Jacob's well. She's Samaritan, and Jesus speaks with her. And as they converse, Jesus comes to this place where he says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And when God, when Jesus says God is spirit, there's a lot that he's saying, not the least of which is if you are relying on your senses, you may just miss God. Where, where is God? Now, this has very real, practical, existential implications for many of us today. And perhaps all of us at some point in your life. You come to a situation, a circumstance in your life, and you ask, where was God in that? Martin Scorsese's latest film is called Silence. And it wrestles with the silence of God as two Catholic priests go to attempt to find another priest who has uh, apostatized. He has is, is renounced Jesus. And when they go, what they find is a church who is persecuted, who is violently 
persecuted, not like made fun of on a Saturday Night Live sketch, like violently imprisoned and persecuted, beaten, burned, hot tar, like things that you can't imagine. And here's the thing is it's based on, on a book that's based on true occurrences. There are people who for their faith have suffered greatly and they go there and uh, Andrew Garfield plays one of the priests. I can't remember his name, and he prays, and he prays, and he prays all throughout the movie. He prays, and he's met with silence. And have you been there? God, I am struggling with this sin. I don't want this in my life. And you pray, and you pray, and you feel like you are met with silence. God, you seem absent. Where were you during slavery? Where were you during the Holocaust? Where are you in Syria, in Uganda, or, uh, in uh, Nigeria, in South Sudan? Where are you, God? Where were you at Columbine? Where were you at Sandy Hook? And that presses into even deeper questions. Are you really good? Are you really there at all? And if you've grown up in the Christian community that I grew up in, and it's not my mom, my mom was fantastic. It wasn't, it was, but just the, the circles and the communities where I was in, even asking those questions were dangerous to your place in the community. And so you are left to wrestle with them by yourself. And let me tell you, family, friends, this is an aside. Wrestling with anything in isolation is not good for you. You were created to live in community. And even if you, like me, are introverted and enough community wipes you out and forces you to go back and, and read a book by yourself for like the next 10 hours, right, there is still a point at which it becomes unhealthy to not re-emerge and work out life in community. Faith is worked out in community. Sola Scriptura did not mean just you and your Bible and your lamp at your desk. Scripture alone doesn't mean that. Scripture itself was written to a community and for a community, is interpreted by a community, was canonized by a community. You need community. And we need to be a community where these questions do not lead to critique or concern for your faith, but rather to loving, walking with, loving compassion, loving engagement. So where is God in all of this? And, and it's the question that David asked, right? And I love it because we read it as our call to worship. David in Psalm 139 says, where shall I go to escape your spirit? Where shall I go from your spirit? And I want you to hear the things that David says. Where shall I flee from your presence? So, right, we get this question. Where, where aren't you, God? God, where are you not? Where could I go and rightly say that God isn't here? 
We say that a lot, don't we? God isn't here. God's not with them. God's not in that place. God left that place. We need God to come back to that place. Even and we do it here in church and, and we mean something different, but there is a sense in which we can teach ourselves some bad habits. We pray and we say, God, would you show up? And God's like, uh, what? Like, <laughs> God, would you show up? Would you meet us in this place? Would you come now, God? We call on you. Come here, God, right? And we, we pray and we think like this, and there's a manner in which, right, David says, restore, cast not your Holy Spirit from, like there is a sense in which we recognize, and, and, and I'm getting ahead of myself, but we pray these things. And so David says, okay, so where can I go where God isn't? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. So if I go to the highest of the heights, and when David says heaven, right, first of all, you have to understand that ancient science understood the universe as three-tiered. There was the heavens, there was the earth, and there was the realm of the dead, Sheol, Hades. So the heavens were above, and the earth was in the middle. And Sheol was below. And that's why you always ascend to heaven. Now that we have like sort of a heliocentric uh, understanding of the universe and understanding also that the earth is round, we, we still say up to heaven, but we mean something else than they meant. Like he literally thought if I could just jump high enough and ascend high enough, I would get into heaven. I would break through the earth and the, the, the sky and then I would enter into heaven. Right, But he's saying, so even if I go to that place, if I go to heaven, are you there? That one's kind of silly, and, and we all know it. David knows the answer. To, of course you're in heaven. But what if I descend to Sheol? Not only there, make my bed in Sheol. So David's confronting his mortality here, but he's confronting something even more existential than that, even deeper than that. Because see, David recognizes that God is life, and where God is, there is life. And so if there is death, can God be there? And listen to what David comes to understand. Even if I make my bed in the realm of the dead, you are there. If I take the wings of morning and dwell in the utmost parts of the sea, even there you're even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall overcome me and the light about me is night, even if this is the darkest of my times. And listen, David had dark times. What does he say? Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day for darkness is as light with you. And so all of a sudden what we see is that David is speaking something about God that we must wrestle with that we must grapple with. He is saying that in heaven, in, in the realm of life and in the realm of death, and then even in between, where we're living and dying, God is there. And he's just saying that at the highest of human existence, at the most joyful time, God is there. And we're easily uh, able to hear that. But then he's saying even in the darkest moments, God is there. Which means that we then have to, we, we answer some of our questions. <laughs> we answer some of our questions in that. God, 
is in the White House. And he was. And he will be. God's presence cannot be kept out of the White House or of Congress or of this city. God was in Littleton, Colorado and in Newtown, Connecticut. He was there. He was in Auschwitz. And he was at Monticello. Not like the, the fancy part of Monticello. The part of Monticello where the slaves were beaten and taken advantage of and made mistresses. That part of Monticello. God was there. And when your relationship fell apart, God was there. And when you met the one that you loved, God was there. And when you're born, God was there. And when you die, God is there. And there is nowhere that God is not. You cannot escape God. God is present everywhere and in everything. And we then begin to say, well, then, if God is there, why can't I see him? And we come finally. I don't like to do this, guys. Like, y'all know this, like, I like to go through books. <laughs> like, I feel like this series, God was leading me to do this series because this is what God has been working on in my life. But, like, if you can strap me to a book and just let me go piece by piece and break it down, like, that's my comfort zone. Getting to the text with, like, six minutes left in the sermon is not. And we've been going through scripture, but here's the text that we read. First Romans, and I love this because this finds itself in, in, um, in a sea of judgment. <laughs> and as, as, as justification in some regards, right? Because it says none, for none, uh, no one has an excuse. All are, all are without excuse. But, but listen to what he said. He says that um, God's invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have clearly been seen since the creation of the world. Listen to this. Being understood through what he has made. And so what Paul is saying is that everyone ought to be able to see some measure of God, of who God is, and what God is like just through creation. Now we talk about knowing God in a Christian sense, and we talk about knowing God in a general sense, and, and we're, we're not conflating those two, but we, what we are saying is that if you look at and explore the universe, there is a sense of God which overwhelms you. We name it a whole bunch of different things, 
Depending on where we are in, in faith and who we are, people name it mystery, they name it wonder, they name it science, and they say, look at the science of things. And, and, and like I said last week, like scientists who are like, look, like their mind gets blown and they're like, there is something that is at play here that is beyond me. And it drives me to keep dividing atoms and smaller things into smaller things. And it drives me to keep looking further out because something is infinite and yet like we can search it. That is something of God that they see. There is something of God that we see when a baby is born. Because you'll find that both religious and irreligious people will say, what a little miracle. And even though there's a scientific explanation for it, they also know that there's something beyond science that's happened here. There's life and love and, and beauty and things that can't be really quantified in, in science. And then they say, what a miracle. And what are they saying? They're seeing the creative, life-giving essence of God just experiencing it and, and there is a sense in which but how do we how do we name it? they're seeing it we see it in death in that moment it's been almost two years now since my grandma died um, and I you know when I found out I was sitting in the DMV trying to get my driver's license so what I thought was the worst thing ever, then I got a call that my grandma had passed away. And I like got called by the DMV as I'm hanging up with my mom. And so I'm like, well, I walk up to this woman and I'm like, here's my stuff trying to keep it together. Because I know that if I break down, she's going to think that the process has been too long. And this guy just can't handle a trip to the DMV, right? And then you have to explain things, right? And so uh, I went down to my grandmother's memorial service. And all of my family was there. And so many of her friends were there. And all these people who knew my grandma were there. And we all started telling stories about my grandma. And we all started crying and in the crying and in the sadness there was this strange sense that we all felt where you start hugging each other and it's is it joy is it a sense of you're not alone is it a sense that there's something here within us even in the sadness there was something beyond us there was something uniting us and even in that grief, God was there. And so what is the problem then that I have? Like, what did I need in that moment to do? I needed to, and this is the first thing that we see, and we see it from this Romans 1 text, is that we are called to reorient our sight. Seeing the invisible is about reorienting the way that you look, the way you attempt to see and perceive. Because there are types of knowledge. There are ways of knowing. I know, I know, uh, I know something. I really do. I promise. I should have written this one down. What an embarrassing example to not be able to come up with, right? Like, I know that gravity is a force that pulls objects of less mass towards 
objects of larger mass, right? I know that, and I know that I love my wife and my children. I know those things differently. One is in a textbook. One is somewhere. We have to, we have to talk about things that are beyond the physical realm. We have to talk about the soul and the spirit. I just, I just know, right? There's intuition knowing, right? If you are married, husbands, listen to your wife because her intuition is stronger than any of your knowledge. It's a fact. And so there are things that Melissa just knows, and I'm like, well, can you write it down in an equation? Like, can you show me the algorithm that comes to this? She's like, no, I just know. And then she's right. Usually it has to do with like perceiving emotions in people. She's like, she didn't look happy. It's like, she looked fine. And she said, I am happy. Melissa just intuited. And she knew something that I couldn't know because I was looking through different eyes than her. But if I reorient my eyes, not to listen to just the words or the face, but to look at the eyes or even to sense the presence of the person, then all of a sudden what I couldn't know or see, I can start to see. And what we're seeing is that creation gives us glimpses of that when we look at life and death and beauty and art and we hear uh, beautiful things and when we hear horrible things and when we look around at all of the world, what we see are shadows, glimpses of uh, the glory of God. And all it takes is reorienting our heart in our mind's eye to see. To see the beauty and the wonder and the mystery and the power and the creative nature that is all around us. And there's still more. Because that's only the beginning of seeing the invisible. That's only seeing the invisible in part. That's only... That's only getting a scent of a flower that you haven't yet seen, to, to quote C.S. Lewis. Or, or, or uh, it's, it's, only, it's only a trailer, right? It's only the Thor Ragnarok trailer, where when you see it in all its glory, you say, I want to go to there. But it pales, hopefully. <laughs> in comparison to the real thing. It's the trailer to the movie. So we come to Colossians chapter 1, and I love this because Paul, like I said last week, sometimes Paul writes theology, and then sometimes Paul's theology makes him sing. He breaks out into song and poetry, and here is one of those songs in Colossians chapter 1 because he starts to think about the glory and the goodness of Jesus Christ and all that Jesus is and all that Jesus has done, and he goes from 
right? For this reason also, since this day we've heard, we haven't stopped praying for you. Uh, And he says, be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might that you have great endurance and patience, joyfully giving thanks to the Father, uh, joyfully giving thanks uh, to the Father who has enabled you to share in the saints' inheritance. He has rescued us from the domain of of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, right? And so, and it's not that that is dull or boring, but that's very factual, Uh, There's a theological transfer that's happened. Domain of darkness, kingdom of light, kingdom of the son that he loves. In him we have redemption, right? Technical theological word, which he breaks down the forgiveness of sins. And then he starts talking about Jesus. And and I'm so thankful that in most translations they like tab over and let you know this is a song. Like this may even have been a hymn that the early church sang. He says, he is the image of the invisible God. Now, think about that for a second, right? That's, he doesn't say, uh, he doesn't say, uh, he doesn't talk about the hypostatic union. He doesn't say Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. He says, he's the image of the invisible God. Right? He sings it, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and by him all things hold together. Do you hear that? All of a sudden he's, do do you know what he just said? You know, he just unpacked that Romans one verse that we read. But instead of saying it sort of theologically, he says it in a song. And he gives us another piece of the the story that is so desperately needed. Because he says, Christ is the image of the invisible God. And so when we talk about seeing God, seeing the invisible, this is the last point, but I think it's an important one. We begin to realize that the invisible has given us little images of him. You see that in Genesis 1, right? We are created in the image of God. And we see that remarkably in Colossians 1 because he says, because what Paul is getting at is that though all people are created in the image of God, there is one who has borne the image of God so perfectly so rightly, so truly, that it is right to say that he is God himself. He is the image of the invisible God. He says it this way in Hebrews. He is the radiance of his glory. You don't see what's happening in the sun. You don't see chemical reactions, but you see the radiance of its glory. We've talked about this, right? We need to keep coming back to it so that when you look at the rays of the sun, even though that's the chemical reaction, like that is the result of it emanating from what is actually the sun, we rightly say that is the Son. They are one and the same. And so Paul says when you look at Jesus, then you see what the invisible God is like. He is the image of the invisible God. And so we begin to see the invisible in Jesus. And what we begin to see is just all the places that God goes. hope this turns our perceptions of where God is upside down. 
Because if we look at Jesus and says, where Jesus goes, God goes, where Jesus was and is, God is, then all of a sudden we don't see Jesus only in the temple and eating with Pharisees and religious scholars. We see Jesus with prostitutes. He's there with them. He's there with tax collectors. Tax collectors weren't even like allowed in the temple. They were unclean, right? If you're a tax collector, you are welcome in our church. If you work for the IRS, you're welcome here. But Jesus was with them. <laughs> and then can we talk later? Can we work? No, I'm just messing. Uh, <laughs> Jesus was with them. Jesus was with the mourning. He was with Mary when she was grieving. And what was he doing with Mary? Weeping. Jesus was with Martha when she was grieving, asking the same question that we started with. Where were you, God? Where were you, Jesus? Where were you, Lord? I recognize in my brain that if you had been here, you could have done something so that you that nothing happens means you weren't, where were you, Lord? And he recognizes each woman individually, recognizes their needs. He speaks truth to Martha. He reminds Martha of the truth. I told you that sickness doesn't end in death, and that I'm here and I am bringing resurrection because I am the resurrection. But then with Mary, there's no theological conversation. It's just tears. And all of a sudden, you see God is here as a wonderful counselor. He knows you. He knows where you are. He's not absent in it. He's there in it, upholding you, David says, with his right hand, holding you in his hand. That's the psalm that we read. And all of a sudden, the image of the invisible God is showing us that in the unexpected places and in the sad places and in the broken places, he is there upholding the broken and the weary and the tired. Where was God in Auschwitz? And I know that for some this will still not be satisfactory because it is so beyond us. But God was there holding a suffering, tormented people, Jewish people, and he was suffering with them. He was not unmoved in their sorrow and in their suffering. He was with them. Where was God? Sandy Hook. He was in every tear that every mother or father or brother or sister or parent cried. And you know what? They weren't the only parent. I can't even talk about this. Oh my gosh. How long has it been? I remember sitting in front of that TV, not knowing a single child, but weeping. God was present in our weeping. And he was at Pulse in Orlando. He was there grieving the death of those men and women. And he's on the streets. He's in our alleys. He's in the crack houses and the projects. And he's even in here with us right now and he's even in the White House, and he's even in our public schools. God is there, and he is with us. And all of a sudden, we realize that God, in our grief and in our joy, 
is there extending a shoulder, extending arms of embrace for you. And we see this because we see Jesus who ultimately shows us that God rushes to the heart of suffering, rushes to the heart of brokenness, rushes to the heart of pain and separation and sin because Jesus rushes to the cross. Christ on the cross tells us where God goes when there is suffering to be had, when there is brokenness to be born, when there is grief and there are tears to be shed, Christ on the cross is the image of the invisible God. So see him. See him. And run to him. 